0: Hello everyone, I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders Innovators and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Christopher Drobutt. Having worked and lived across Western Canada, Christopher has recently made a shift out of an 18-year career with one company to now exploring Edmonton's innovation ecosystem. His experience launching a store in a new market helped him realize his excitement around bringing ideas into reality and the power of a supportive network in making that happen. Christopher is involved in the Aquatic Biosphere project working on funds development for a push to bring a world-class aquarium to the city of Edmonton. He's also working towards building a machine learning model with retail applications and is completing the final courses towards his MBA. And now let's listen to an entrepreneurial success story as Christopher sits down with James Kirstead. Take it away, Chris.
1: All right. Hello and welcome to the Rainforest Alberta podcast. This episode, we are coming to you from Edmonton. I'm your host, Christopher Drobot, and with us today for this episode is James Kierstead. James is a lifelong entrepreneur with a commitment to innovation, excellence, and enhancing people's lives. He is a serial entrepreneur and successfully grew a local manufacturing company to a large international presence. His current role as president at Levin Electronics sees him responsible for managing the vision and growth of the company as they carve a new path in wireless, connected building systems. James is a member of Entrepreneurs' Organization, the A100, Alberta Women Entrepreneurs, and he was one of the driving forces bringing rainforest to edmonton this should be a great episode welcome to the podcast james
2: thank you chris how are
1: you oh doing great today really enjoy coming out to your office like because of how much you have on the go here like you've got the three different bays and i know you've you've grown levin electronics over the last number of years to to quite a a large presence and uh you know, why don't you tell us kind of how how you started that, how you got to where you are today?
2: Well, yeah. So interestingly enough, um, Levin is really born out of a vertical integration play that um, I had with my past business, my business partners, and I um, founded Arctic Spas here in Alberta in 1997. And what a lot of people don't know about that business is that we uh, actually had vertically integrated a number of our supply chain areas, and one of the areas that we had been developing quite a bit of innovation, and finding that our competition was um, getting their hands on our innovation because of the way the system worked in the world, we decided we should, you know, start looking at designing our own controls. Um, turned out there was a company that wanted to manufacture controls for us. And so we started working with them. And in 2009, it became after three years of them trying to make it go, it became pretty clear that they weren't going to be able to make it go. And we, I decided to buy the assets of that business. And we set up an engineering team and started designing our own spa controls. In fact, we had developed the first... Um, connected spa in the industry before IoT was even a thing, and um,
1: not just for some listeners that might not know IoT. That's
2: oh, Internet of Things! Yeah. So we connected a hot tub through the internet, um, through the cloud, and had an app on your phone. Still does today, allow you to see how your spa is functioning and actually turn things on and off from from wherever you are in the world. And that has blossomed into a number of different um technologies that we've spun, you know, developed since then. And at the time we were just getting um we were just getting another manufacturer, a local manufacturer, to actually make the um controls. But, you know, we wanted to delve into it even deeper. So I connected with um, through an engineer friend connected with Nabil Fala, who runs my manufacturing here and met the owners of, at the time, Inspire Electronics, and they were struggling. And um, I uh, took the opportunity to buy the business and uh, bring over all of our control business. And And so you
1: integrated that into Arctic Spas? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So we, today, to this very day, we build all the electronics for Arctic Spas. We Build their spa controls. Their automated water management system was designed by our team here, and um, and it's been it's been great. I've had a long, wonderful relationship with those guys. In 2014, I am um, I uh, approached them to to exit Arctic Spas, and so that I could stay focused on on Levin. Levin, I saw this opportunity to sort of. Take this IP that we had developed in the hot tub industry of connecting devices. Because if you think of a hot tub, it really is, could be thought of as like a microcosm of your home. It has input devices, it has sensors, it has programming that automates features and stuff. And it turns things on and off. Much the same as our homes, except when you look at our homes, for most people, Control automation just doesn't exist. It's so expensive today that um, the average person just isn't putting it in their house. And um,
1: So the furnace turns on when it's supposed to, but that's probably extended automation that exists.
2: Yeah. If you think about it, our homes are probably the dumbest thing we interact with on a daily basis, right? Um, If you look at our cars today, they're much, much brighter than our homes. And... um, when, so when I first started looking at this, I saw these um, you know, expensive integrators, which would bring these incredibly centralized home automation systems in to homes. And they were really expensive. They would range from $50,000 to $250,000 for a home. Wow. And so they were really only available to the rich. And I, I come from very poor beginnings. Um, From a single parent family. My mom raised three of us. And I just had, I've always had this vision of why can't we make this, you know, available to everyone? Um, So, yeah, that's actually why we started with the light switch.
1: Such a simple part of the house, eh?
2: A simple part of the house. But if you think about it, the most common control mechanism we actually use in our home is a light switch and it's ver- it's very pervasive so if you think about thermostats you know nest made a massive business on thermostats we typically put one you know some bigger homes might have two in a house when you look at light switches we're averaging about 35 switches here in canada um and in the us that number can range from 50 to 70 switches in a home wow so we saw this opportunity to to try and use um, our technology that we had developed um, to try and change, you know, wireless controls in homes. And our idea came about this. if What if we could remove the wires from the wall? How much time, money, and energy would that, and materials, would that save the builder? And if it saved enough, could that help offset the cost of the technology so that it could just come with the home. And that was where it all sort of started. We had this mindset of, is that possible? And at that time, another company was actually looking very hard at wireless um, switching landmark homes. And Reza Nasri was introduced to us. And it was kind of like this collision of, yeah, that's exactly what we've been thinking about we think we can actually make that happen. So it turns out it's a lot more challenging than we originally thought. Um,
1: we have how many years ago was that when you got things started?
2: We got things started with them in 2012. December of 2012 is when we actually met Reza for the first time. Um, by 20 mid 2014, we had the first design done. And uh, by 2015, we had reiterated and developed a new design. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got my dates wrong. By 2017, we developed our next version. So we worked on that um, quite some time. It was probably 2014 before we had fully finished the first design. And it was funny. You know, first challenge was when we first started working on it, all the switch was was a transmitter and the load controller was a receiver. So we had this uh, concept that we were going to really drive down the cost by making it single way communication and it was all about driving the cost of that switch and load controller design so that we could compete with what it costs a builder to install a regular wired switch in a home and we thought you know we thought it was going to be really simple it turned out it was a lot more complex in fact The electronic side of that switch was the easy part the far more complex part was how are we going to make that switch the mechanical design of that switch give you the look and feel of a regular wired wall decora switch today most wireless switches they feel like mouse clicking and they're really not they don't give you that tactile feedback that we as human beings have become so used to.
1: And and I mean, like the one that I see over there on the glass, that's yeah. one of your switches that is just stuck to the glass. That's right. That looks exactly like the normal one you'd see in a house.
2: That's right. Yeah, probably the only difference you'd notice is that instead of the rocker being in the up or down position, it sits in the middle position. And when you press on it, it refl- rebounds back to center position. Um The reason we did that is we knew we were onto something that was going to change an industry. I mean, if you think about lighting and switching lights today, the switch was developed in 1917. We've literally been basically wiring homes with uh, switches for the same way for over 100 years. And we knew that for people to really accept this new idea, it had to feel and look very similar to what they were already doing. And otherwise, the pushback would be much, much harder in trying to gain adoption. And in fact, we've had some of our builders in the US who've been installing our product for probably a year and a half now say to us, you know, the best compliment we can pay you guys is that they... uh, our customers have been using your switches for all this time. And most of them don't even know it's a new switch.
1: That's awesome. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So back to the challenge. So that was the big first challenge. And then came the second challenge, which was code. You know, we had the Canadian electrical code is really, and same with the national electrical code in the U S has really been built around that wired switch in the wall. And It actually never defined a wall switch in either of the codes. And so we figured we'd be okay, but turns out we weren't. Uh, The electrical inspectors basically read that as the code need, or you need to have a wire running to that switch connected to the luminaire in the room. And we've been battling that since 2014.
1: And and you talked about uh, at the beginning about how you thought it was going to be pretty straightforward and simple. This is probably something you didn't even expect or?
2: Neither us nor uh, Reza from Landmark Homes who, who proposed to be our first customer. In fact, was ready to start purchasing switches as soon as we had developed the first generation and couldn't. Code would not allow him to install them in his homes here. It took Three years of lobbying the uh, Alberta government, and we finally, in February of 2018, we got them to um, issue a stand data allowing for wire-free switching in the province of Alberta. But since then, only Saskatchewan has followed suit. The rest of Canada has said, no, we're not going to change until there's an actual change to the Canadian Electrical Code, which probably if all goes well, will happen in 2021.
1: Wow. But you'd mentioned you'd had some U.S. customers already.
2: We have a number of U.S. customers and the U.S. is much like Canada in that um, code can be interpreted by the um, municipal body or by the state body. And we gained early adoption in New Mexico and Arizona. So we started going hard in those markets Now, I'm happy to say that it will know by August 6th, um, but it looks like our switch um, suggestions, the proposal we have in front of the NEC, uh, which will allow for wireless switches, will um, be accepted into the 2020 code in the U.S. So
1: it's possible by the time this actually is published that uh, you may have gotten something moved through on that.
2: It is absolutely possible. So so right now we're already um, selling to builders in Arizona and New Mexico and Southern California now as well. And Alberta, of course. But the challenges didn't stop there. (laughs) 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 Then what we found out was it's a whole lot harder to prove that you can financially meet the cost of a wired switch today because of the quote process that builders use. So they use a bid process with with electrical contractors. So the builder only knows the total cost for the electrical installation of the home. They don't actually know the individual cost for getting a switch installed. And the electrical contractor is not incentivized to share that information by any means. So we literally had to find um, electrical contractor champion that would work with us to help share all the numbers, builders that would work with us, and we built calculators. And then we took those calculators back and we tested them with builder after builder, with uh, contractor after contractor to prove out our math. Because our promise to them was, we'll meet your price today. Whatever you're paying for a regular wired switch, we'll match it but it's really tough when they don't really know how much it was costing or they're unwilling to share it. Yeah. And you can imagine the electrical contractor who doesn't really understand that they're necessarily that they're in the business of managing skilled labor. They th- many think that they're in the business of pipe and wire. And if you're coming to them telling them, "Hey, we're going to help you take 30% of the wire out of the building, and we're going to save you 25 to 30% of your labor on that building." They think you're taking business away from them. But in actual fact, we're helping them become more efficient with the labor force they already have. And they and we found that they have a real problem because f- for every four people that leave the industry today, only one is joining it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So while they may be managing it today and in, in the United States they're absolutely not managing it. They cannot build as many homes as they have demand for simply because they don't have the trades to do the work. So it is a it's a big problem. Less of a problem here in Alberta, in hotter markets though in Canada, still a problem. So it's we like actually Vancouver,
1: Toronto might might be in that spot.
2: Vancouver, Toronto, um yeah, definitely yeah. markets that are are seeing a lot more building than we are. So we could bring them all this capacity back. And so when you think about it, if we could save them, match the price that they were paying for switches today, but save them as we learned by testing with our builders, two days on an average home, that two days now translates into redeployment of resources. That redeployment of resources allows them to go and make more homes which makes them more money, everybody in the value chain can actually do better with this technology.
1: Well, especially in somewhere like Alberta or even Canada, where we only have a very short compressed building season, really. like It's not like you're out there building all year round.
2: Yeah, but it, it actually impacts everyone. If you think about it, it impacts the American builders even more because they're much larger. If you talk to Lenar Holmes, who's been piloting our product and they're the second largest builder in North America. They'll build 53,000 homes a year. If they could add two days of uh, saved time to every home, that is massive amount of opportunity. I think it worked out to over 4,000 more homes they could build with the same resources that they have today. Wow. So it's it's a lot of money for them.
1: Absolutely, so it a, is.
2: It's a big deal. And that's what we talk about when we say, it's funny what technologies actually disrupt industries. It's actually not about the technology. It's about the business model that the technology enables. And this is a perfect example. The technology itself, wireless switching, using RF to communicate to a load controller in the ceiling, it's not really that unique to be fair we've been using garage door openers for 30 years right yeah right that technology is pretty well seated in our daily lives the fact that we were able to figure out how to bring it into the home and drive that cost to the point where builders could actually justify it because the other problem they have is they can't raise the cost of homes You hear about it in the news all the time. Today, affordability of homes is one of the biggest problems that face our youth and the people entering the the home markets uh, every year. So adding more cost is not an option. If we want home automation to become ubiquitous, we've got to figure out how it's going to take cost out of building homes, yet still deliver that extra value that the customer is looking for
1: that did you set out to like change the world cuz that's kind of what it sounds like like you basically you've got like code being rewritten you've got complete business models being rewritten like you're
2: yeah so i mean all i did when we started was i thought hey we can build these small little building blocks that would be relatively inexpensive connect them together with a wireless mesh network that was ultra reliable And people could install them into the new construction market relatively inexpensively. And kind of like a la carte, as we add devices, they could pick and choose the devices they want. So you could make your home as smart or as simple as you wanted it to be. If you only want it to be lighting control, no problem. If you want to add later on sensor controls, temperature controls, timing, all those things are possible with where we're going. And because they connect on this wireless network, you really only have to pick up the cost for the individual device. Right. So we thought, yeah, that'll be really easy. Had I, honestly, if I had any idea that it was going to be the battle it has been with code, I'm not sure I would have jumped in as deeply as we did. I mean, we've put massive amount of investment into it. And now you're
1: swimming in that pool. You're committed.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, my, my uh, old business partner, Darcy Ament at Arctic Spas, he used to have a saying. He's a, he's a farmer as well. And he'd say, his saying was always, you can't say woe in the mud. And he's absolutely right. You know, you're in the middle of the other of the pond. You can see the other side of that mud hole. You know you can get out. But, but if you let off that throttle, you're never going to make it through. And, and that's exactly what this has been. And um, uh, it's been a really interesting thing for us. And I guess the next thing that came along, the next big challenge that came along was, well, that's all great that you can do all this. But if we don't have it connected to the internet through a gateway and an app, it's still too risky for us to just save the wiring costs um, and time. That's all wonderful. But unless we can get more, so we have to match the price, you've got to save me all this time, and you have to deliver more to my customers in value. Unless you can do all that, we're not going to move.
1: That was the builder partner saying
2: that. That was the builder partner saying that. And so then we had to go back and take a look at our one-way communication design, design a whole two-way communication design, and the whole mesh network came to be. And and then we found out, you know, hey, we thought we'd be able to build this on, you know, some service that was already out there. Lots of companies are talking about these cloud, IoT cloud services. Well, the reality is none of those services have been developed to manage the number of devices we have in the home.
1: Well, you're talking 50 to 70 switches and then whatever other devices. That you well, might- and you're going to have...
2: For every switch, you've also got a load controller. So in the average home, there are 70 to 200 devices. Wow. And their protocols just weren't designed for that. So we had to develop the whole firmware stack, the whole software protocol, the back backend, um, the application, all of it to be robust with these massive amounts of of devices communicating back and forth and still have low latency because a customer expects when they hit that button on the wall that that light turns on. They they don't want to be waiting seconds for that to happen. So what we thought was going to be really simple turned out to be incredibly complex.
1: Wow. That's, that is quite the story. Like from there to, you know, there to here. And uh, so where, where did Rainforest come into that? Like, I I think that we touched on that a little bit before, but like you've, you've been on this massive entrepreneurial journey that's spanned basically your entire life. Where do some of these other organizations and and you know Rainforest specifically, where where does that all kind of fit in?
2: Yeah, so um, I've been a member of Entrepreneurs Organization for 16 years, and um, that organization has been paramount to me um, and my life as an entrepreneur. Um, I have a forum that basically acts as my therapy group (laughs) and I'm one of their therapists as well. Um, and that experience in EO has taught me the value of reaching out into the community. And if you can do that in, uh, an environment of trust, um, diversity, um, respect, amazing things can happen, um, you know, even in EO where non-solicitation is part of the fabric of that organization, people do business together because they trust each other. Right. Yeah. So I can't go and hawk hot tubs to my fellow EO members, but you can be assured when my fellow EO members were looking for hot tubs, they were calling me. And that's kind of the same sort of theory that Rainforest is all about. Listen, if we can pull together funders, if we can pull together uh, the government the non-governmental organizations and service providers that support entrepreneurs and we can connect all these entrepreneurs together in this you know format where trust they can trust each other to share ideas new partnerships new ideas will get launched new startups will come to be and experienced entrepreneurs like myself Also gain from that because we get to feel that energy and that excitement that as as you mature kind of wears off a little, you know. And I just I had this belief that you know if we want to solve the world's problems, it's going to start with entrepreneurs. Organizations are getting bigger and bigger, and their capacity to innovate is actually getting worse. Right. And yet, entrepreneurs and startups and and graduates from university and they're coming up with these brilliant ideas but you know need to have that mentorship that market that safety net that they can connect with that will help them launch their ideas into reality
1: well, a lot of times they're they're actually market solutions like they're there's something that people it's not it's not a volunteer thing they're actually saying hey if we build this product this will solve this problem and here's this small you know, price that that might actually be, but it's enough of a low price versus the value that it's totally worth it.
2: Right. But, but what they don't know is, well, you know, I've been an academic or I've been a computer science student or um, what have you. And I don't really know how to start and run a business because remember what I said about earlier, disrupting technology in itself doesn't actually create the disruption. It's Typically, the business model that gets opened up or created by that technology is where the real disruption occurs. So now all of a sudden, you've got these brilliant tech people with brilliant tech, but they need to have people that they can talk to that understand the other side, the whole business side of things. And that's where this, you know, entrepreneur meets tech is so wonderful. And you know myself i got involved in it because for really two things one um i became a member of the a100 uh two and a half years ago um solely because i am not from the tech community originally and thought i've got to go out there and meet people in this community so i can get more connections understand the landscape better know who can help me when i run up against problems that i'm just not experienced with and I met a gentleman named Jim Gibson, who, um, with Brad Zumwalt, started Rainforest Alberta down in Calgary. And Jim said to me, "Listen, um, I hear you know quite a lot of people in uh, the entrepreneurial community in Edmonton, um, and I need some help. I want to get Rainforest up and thriving in in Edmonton because there's an ecosystem there that needs the support." And I said. Uh, yeah, because I knew a I knew that giving back to the community would absolutely pay back tenfold because I didn't know literally anyone in the tech community in Edmonton. So I was gonna get this massive knowledge base of people that could I could reach out to and have already. You know, great example. Myrna Bittner and I met through Rainforest and run with it is doing a lot of our synthetic development. Um, testing all of our how our wireless protocol works at volumes we could never test in the field. Right. Um, so that's just one perfect example of where helping has also helped us. Um, so yeah, I I really enjoyed you know leading the charge here, um, and I'm I challenge entrepreneurs to step forward and and get involved. It may not seem obvious today how being involved in a community like that will impact your business, but I can tell you that there is a universal truth that when the tide rises, all boats rise with it. And if we can generate more tech uh, startups in our province, if we can keep more brilliant minds working in our province, we will accelerate innovation in this province, and it will benefit all of us. And sometimes in ways that we just don't even know when we start down that path. I mean, who would have considered Arctic Spas to be a company that really is a technology company in a lot of ways? They've been competitive globally because of their mindset on using technology and innovation. I think that could be amazing to see what that could do for all these standard, you know, sort of uh, non-tech. traditional businesses in our industry in alberta
1: i, I had heard uh, Corey jansen a while back talking about ai specifically and he said that there is no ai industry there is just ai applied in every industry and i think that's the same sort of idea as what you're saying here is just that if we just look at our at innovation and figure out how we can apply it in whatever we do today whether it's manufacturing or whether it's in a standalone software company innovation by itself is what's going to kind of get us there.
2: Absolutely. We cannot consider technology as its own single environment. It 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 should permeate through everything we do in all the businesses in our province. And if it does that, we'll find some amazing new things happen. And I've been really fortunate in that I've got to meet through the A100 and through the rainforest, some absolutely brilliant people that are doing amazing things in pretty, you know, standard industries that would not be considered technology-based. I think that's fantastic. That's where the real
1: rubber hits the road in my eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, Maybe kind of on that, so some of these folks that you've been meeting at Rainforest, these young, energetic individuals that have these great ideas, what would be top of mind advice that you would share with them, share with the audience that we have on you know the, the path that they have ahead of them as entrepreneurs?:
2: Sure, I, I guess there are a few things. One is you know I said this at uh, the very first rainforest meeting at. Uh, work nicer this year Uh, they asked me to come and share my story and my uh, my talk was no one really cares about your technology and it wasn't that the, the point of it wasn't about technology is unimportant the point is we have to look at the model that the technology makes available and to figure out the business model you start with where's the customer's pains and gains um That's where you really find the opportunities in your market. And so a lot of startups that I talk with, they've got a great technology that they're trying to make fit into something instead of the other way around. We've found a great market where there's a big gap and a wonderful problem to solve and we've got a solution for it. That to me is way more interesting and is going to have the ability to really stand the test of time as opposed to we've got a really great idea, but we have no idea who we're going to sell it to. And then I would say spend as much time or even more time on that and understanding the customer and building out the business model and the pricing model. And then get out there and test it with your friends, test it with um, the, there's lots of service providers, there's lots of mentors in our community who would happily share their advice. Those are the absolute imperatives before you start writing lots of code and, and opening molds and all those things. Do that first. Um, your technology will definitely iterate a lot more than you think if you do that. And you'll have an easier time getting customers, which really at the end of the day is what it's all about. The next thing I would say is don't be afraid to think big. I think we as Canadians have this tendency to uh to really think, yeah, you know, I just want to live a comfortable retirement. I, I don't care about, you know, being the biggest in the world. I, I would say we can compete globally. When when I started in the hot tub business, people didn't even, a lot of people didn't even know what hot tubs were back then. And uh the idea of a Canadian hot tub company selling hot tubs in Europe and Australia and all over the United States didn't seem possible. We were able to compete. I believe that wholeheartedly today. Most of my control business is happening in the United States because that's the market I'm I'm focused on today because it's so much bigger than the Canadian market. So definitely think think big, think global. Even if you are a social entrepreneur and you want to go out and change the world, I'm sorry to say, we will not change the world by thinking insularly. We have to think beyond our borders.
1: But Actually, it's a really nice parallel, just even what you talked about, about entrepreneurs organization, how you, by collaborating with others and reaching out to others, you're actually able to have a larger impact. People started coming and talking to you about what you had to offer. If we do that as a city even, or as a community and reach out to the rest of the world, What else could we accomplish?
2: Yeah. And, you know, people say, well, I got to know all the ins and outs before I go. I can tell you that they didn't have a TAP, you know, trade accelerator program or anything put on by the government back when I first, in 1999, hopped on a plane to the United Kingdom to open a warehouse. I had 15 grand in my pocket because we had never opened a warehouse. Uh, we had four containers of spas on the water and we we I flew over to go set up our first warehouse only to find out I couldn't even do it because they have common law, um, which is very different than how we set up leases and everything here. So I had to convince a farmer to store <laughs> four containers of spas in, in his yard until um, until we were able to get the warehouse open, which took almost six months. How'd that work
1: for you, by the way? Business partner with the farmer. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah. So, and he became our first dealer, actually, of hot tubs in the United Kingdom. And today, that warehouse is still there. And it springboarded us into all of Europe. And it is the largest imported brand in the United Kingdom, all because we took the leap, even though we didn't even know what the heck we were doing. We took the leap. And I would say, don't be afraid to go out there and take the leap. There are a lot of other things I could get into but I don't know if, if uh, we that have. could take
1: a lot of, a lot of time yeah
2: yeah Th- those are the two big ones really focus on the customer and the business model then solve that problem with your technology and think big we can compete we have some of the most brilliant minds in the world right here in Canada we have one of the greatest education systems the highest literacy rate there is no reason that Canada can't compete
1: I think whatsoever I 100% agree, and uh, I think that's actually a, a great, you know, period to put on our our podcast here, just uh, an endpoint. Because what else, what else could we add? So, thanks for your time today, James. I really appreciate this, and uh, and hopefully everybody that's listening uh, enjoyed this as
0: well. So, thank you. Thanks, Chris. It was an absolute pleasure. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo busting, sector agnostic, all industry, open source, ego shrinking, ecosystem building, entrepreneur focused, wide open, social barrier smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by a generous contribution from Levin Electronics and is hosted by volunteers from Rainforest Alberta. This episode was also made possible by a contribution from Alberta Enterprise Corporation